Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There are cases we have all heard of. Madeleine McCann, William Tyrrell, Lisa Irwin, Kyron Holman. I could go on. But what about those missing children who you have never heard about? They are just a short blurb on page four and you never hear about them again. The children you will learn about in the next two episodes are all part of minority groups and have just enough strange, intriguing details that have you wanting to go down that rabbit hole. But you won't be able to. There is no long-form article in your favourite news outlet. And the podcast that you love? There is no episode. This episode of Mysteriously Listed. Little Known Missing Children's Cases. Number 7. Barbara Burns. Eight-year-old Barbara Burns has not been seen since March 15, 1982. Her mother Carmen and stepfather Diego Garcia went missing at the same time. That March morning, Carmen's mother came downstairs to have breakfast with the family, only to find her daughter crying, but she never asked why. A few hours later, around noon, the family set off in their 1977 Toyota Corolla. Nothing was packed to indicate they planned on leaving for any length of time. It would be later reported police found left-behind luggage, clothing, food, and even the beloved family dog. They would never be seen again. It would only be a month later, on April 25th, that the family's car would be found 500 feet down a gorge in the San Gabriel Mountains near Big Pines, California. The car was buried under five feet of snow and the top of the car had been crushed in. Despite the large fall, no bodies or blood would be found in the car. Now, this road had been closed since the trio disappeared, and this led police to believe that their car had been accidentally knocked off the gorge by a snowplough, or possibly purposely pushed off the gorge by the family's killer. With so little to go on, police had to grasp at whatever they could. There were rumours that Carmen had secretly converted to a cult-type religion which involved candles and live chicken sacrifice. This rumour has never been substantiated. Other theories include the idea that Diego was falling into bad habits, such as gambling and drugs. Carmen obviously would not want her daughter around that environment, and subscribers to this theory believe she took Barbara and fled to the small community in Miami, Florida, known as Little Haven. 
or because of Diego's new habits, the trio were abducted and killed. Like the last theory, though, this has never been proven. Over the years, there have been several sightings of Carmen, but Diego and Barbara have not been seen since March 15, 1982. At the time of her disappearance, Barbara Burns was 5 foot and 100 pounds. She was biracial and had black hair and brown eyes. She was last seen wearing a violet jumpsuit. If Barbara was still alive today, she would be 44 years old. Number 6. Stephen Anderson and David Williams 17-year-old Stephen Anderson and 12-year-old David Williams were roommates at the New Lisbon State School for Retarded Males in New Lisbon, New Jersey. On April 7, 1975, the pair had spent the day playing ball on the facility's almost 2,000-acre property with some staff members. The two were last seen walking out of the facility together at around 4.15pm. Employees were said to have searched the grounds immediately after realising Stephen and David were missing. The New Jersey State Police, New Jersey Department of Human Services Police, Pemberton Township Police Department and the Air Guard were all notified of the disappearances. All the waterways in the area were searched as it was not clear whether the boys were able to swim. Another theory at the time was that the boys ran away and were living with the city's large homeless community. This would have been easy for them to blend in, except that David wore a protective helmet for his frequent seizures and because of his tendency to have temper tantrums and bang his head. David also took daily seizure medication and without that may have had a grand mal seizure. In the days that followed, helicopters, bloodhounds and volunteer ground searchers assisted with the search, but neither David or Stephen were ever seen again. In 1982, another resident disappeared and was never found. There is no evidence the cases are connected. However, blog Hard Candy reported about the alleged abuse and neglect at the facility around the time of all three disappearances. Both teens had developmental delays and would be unable to care for themselves without supervision. At the time of his disappearance, David Williams was 5 foot and 113 pounds. He was African-American with black hair and brown eyes. He was last seen wearing a blue suede jacket and a maroon striped jogging suit. If David was still alive today, he would be 57 years old. At the time of his disappearance, Stephen Anderson was 5 foot 8 and 141 pounds. He had a chipped front tooth and brown hair and blue eyes. He was last seen wearing a blue hooded jacket, a blue shirt and blue pants. 
if Stephen was still alive today, he would be 62 years old. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Number five, Kimberly Boyd. On Friday, April 3rd, 1987, 32-year-old Sarah Boyd, her daughter, two-and-a-half-year-old Kimberly, and close friend, 33-year-old Lyndon McCord, left their homes in Dorchester County in South Carolina. The trio were headed to a gospel concert in church in Walterboro, about 30 miles from their homes. Now, it is difficult to construct a timeline from here as information is unclear and conflicting. This case, to me, is so similar to the Springfield 3, but there is not a lot of information about this case. What I can determine is that Sarah, Kimberly and Linda were going to see a gospel concert that night and then come back to Dorchester County at some point, between 9.30 and midnight. There is mention in some news articles that Linda's Blue Lincoln was seen abandoned on the side of the road around 10pm, but this cannot be substantiated. Sarah's husband and Kimberly's father, Philip Boyd, had to work that evening. When he returned at midnight and they weren't home, He wasn't particularly worried. He knew it was going to be a late night and reasonably assumed that the pair was going to stay with the McCords for the night. When he woke up at 6am and they still hadn't returned home, he reported them missing to police. It wouldn't be until Sunday, April 5th, that Linda's blue Lincoln was found in Orangeburg County after Linda's husband took it upon himself to look for the trio. It seemed like there was a mechanical issue behind the car being abandoned as the freeze plug had blown out of the car and it had been running hot. At the time, though, the police did not consider the disappearances to be a crime and the car would not be examined for evidence. The main theory behind the disappearances would be that possibly the car began to have engine trouble, and that's why they were seen by some eyewitnesses to only be driving 35 to 40 miles per hour on the night in question. But when the car broke down and they went to get help, then something may have happened to them after they left the car. What was strange, though, and there is a lot of strange in this case, but they were driving north from Walterboro, where the concert was, to their home in Dorchester County. But for some reason, the car was found 15 miles past their home. Why would they do this? This seemed even more bizarre if the car was having mechanical issues. And considering my partner is a mechanic... The car would have been overheating for a while for this mechanical issue to occur. 
Strangely, it would take three weeks for a search of the area to take place. This was the only search I could find in my research. According to statements from the sheriff's office, this search only happened to appease the family. They did find one thing, though, and that was a large marijuana farm that would have had the street value of more than $20 million. But because of this discovery, the search for Kimberly, Sarah and Linda was called off, as those resources were now responsible for cutting down and removing the drugs. After that, the case disappeared from media outlets. Given this type of disappearance is rare, multiple people and a small child, you think it would be a favourite with true crime podcasts. Alas, it is not. The only other information available is a $6,000 reward offer in 1987 and in 1990 when Sarah's credit card was used in a local mall. Unfortunately, the signature on the receipt could not be deciphered, but authorities did determine that it did not belong to Sarah. At the time of her disappearance, Kimberly Boyd was 3 foot 4 and 25 pounds. She was African American with black hair and brown eyes. If Kimberly was still alive today, she would be 35 years old. Number 4. Michelle Delphi On the evening of May 2nd, 1992, four-year-old Michelle Delphi was playing with her toy car in the front patio of her grandparents' house in Santa Isabel, Puerto Rico. Inside the home, only a few feet away, was her mother Wanda, her grandfather and some other adults. At around 8pm, Michelle's grandfather heard a car quickly accelerate and roar down the street. He looked out of the window but did not see anything. He then realised Michelle was missing. All of the adults in the home did a search but could not find her. Besides the car sounds, there was nothing else to go on. Michelle did not call out or scream, which led investigators to believe she knew her abductor. According to Michelle's poster from the Centre of Missing and Exploited Children, after her disappearance, she was last seen in the company of a family acquaintance. This family acquaintance left Puerto Rico for a while and then returned without Michelle. There is not a lot of information about this person or how much they were investigated by police. But then again, that's this case in a nutshell. There isn't much information out there at all. Michelle's Charlie Project profile suggests that her father could be involved in her disappearance and that while he still lives in the area, the rest of his family does not. There is a theory that Michelle was dressed as a boy and smuggled out of the country into the United States or the Dominican Republic. He would later be cleared from suspicion as he was homeless at the time and he had no means to abduct his daughter. 
Michelle's mother Wanda has been open with her disappointment with how her daughter's case was handled. She claims multiple agencies were involved, but they did not want to share information with each other due to the competition to solve the case first. Wanda also claims to have not heard from anyone investigating her daughter's case in years, and the agencies involved won't tell her anything regarding the case. The case was featured on America's Most Wanted, but I don't know if it generated any tips. Unfortunately, human trafficking was and still is a big issue in Puerto Rico, and missing persons cases do not get the resources they deserve and are quickly forgotten. Michelle was the eldest of three children, with a baby brother and sister who never got the chance to get to know their big sister. Wanda stored away all of Michelle's pictures because she has been quoted as saying that looking at them caused her to fall into a deep depression. Her family are still waiting for her to come home. At the time of her disappearance, Michelle Delphi was 3 foot and 40 pounds. She was Hispanic with brown hair and hazel green eyes. She had a birthmark on her lower back and may have a scar on her right cheek. Michelle would be described as being playful and affectionate and loved riding her bike and being outdoors. She was last seen wearing a blue shirt and a denim skirt. If Michelle is still alive today, she would be 32 years old. Number 3. Stephanie Crane October 11th, 1993 was the day that shook the small community of Chalice, Idaho forever. In 1993, Chalice had a population of 991, which meant that everyone knew everyone, and the town was surrounded by several wilderness areas, making it very isolated. It was one of those towns that nothing bad ever happened and crime was basically non-existent. But on this day, nine-year-old Stephanie Crane went missing and has not been seen since. At 5pm, Stephanie's mother Sandy dropped her off at a local bowling alley with some of her closest friends. The group spent about an hour there before leaving at around 6pm. Stephanie was last seen walking towards Chalice High School on Highway 93. Now it's not clear why she was headed this way. It may have been to soccer practice, which was held across the street from the school in a field, or possibly towards her family home, which was only 500 yards away. It wouldn't be until 9pm, three hours after Stephanie was last seen, that her parents notified the police. The search was thorough, covering 7,000 square miles across two counties, but there was no sign of the little girl. Stephanie had been carrying a personal alarm with her when she was taken, and she did manage to activate it. She either dropped it during the abduction or her abductor disposed of it. It is the type of personal alarm that continues to make noise to bring help. 
Some neighbourhood boys would find it and bury it when they couldn't shut it off. They reported it to the police after her disappearance when they heard it on the news. She was right down the street from her home. Police theorised that Stephanie was taken by a stranger, with five to ten persons of interest being considered. The only lead the police had were reports of a yellow pickup truck with red pinstripes, which was seen in the area around the time of the disappearance. Even then, police cannot be sure that this vehicle was connected. One of these persons of interest was Keith Glenn Hescock. Hescock was also suspected in the 2001 abduction of another girl, 20-year-old Amber Hopes. He also abducted a 14-year-old girl from her home in 2002. Fortunately, this girl was able to escape his home after he left for work, despite her being chained to his bed. The police went to his workplace to arrest him, which resulted in a 40-mile chase and a police officer being wounded, a canine unit being killed. Hescock would suicide rather than be arrested. One thing of note is that Hescock was an acquaintance of Stephanie's family and had a truck similar to the one seen on the day that she was kidnapped. He was also seen hunting in the Chalice area on the day Stephanie disappeared. Sadly, both of Stephanie's parents are now deceased, but her three younger sisters have not given up hope that they will get answers that they desperately search for. There is currently a $50,000 reward for any information that results in the whereabouts of Stephanie or the identity of her abductor. At the time of her disappearance, Stephanie Crane was 4 foot 2 and 65 to 85 pounds. She had thick and curly brown hair, blue eyes, and freckles across the bridge of her nose. She was last seen wearing a maroon and white striped hooded sweatshirt with gimme printed on the front, maroon sweatpants, and maroon and white shoes. If Stephanie was still alive today, she would be 35 years old. Number 2. Jaquilla Scales Four-year-old Jaquilla Scales was last seen sleeping in her bedroom in her great-grandmother's house in Wichita, Kansas. It was September 5, 2001. Jaquilla lived with her great-grandmother, her mother, two uncles and her younger brother. Both children were put to bed around 8 o'clock and were last checked on around 12.30am when Jaquilla was covered up with a blanket. This was the last time that she would ever be seen. Her great-grandmother woke up a second time around 3am, only to find the bedroom door open and Jaquilla missing. The house was immediately searched, but there was no sign of the little girl anywhere. The police were called an hour later to report Jaquilla missing. 
As part of their search, as many as 50 Wichita police went door-to-door in northern Kansas, asking anyone if they had seen the little girl. Local media began broadcasting about the missing child, and eventually the FBI and the Kansas Bureau of Investigation became involved. It would be determined there was no sign of forced entry, but the back door was unable to be locked. Unsolved mystery and true crime forums have theorised that someone had found their way in, had taken Jaquilla from her great-grandmother's home in the early hours of the morning. But her family has said that this would be impossible because the family dog had not barked. The family dog would always bark when anyone walked in the door, even family. Jaquilla's mother was not home on the night of the abduction and was staying at a friend's home. She has expressed guilt in interviews for not being there. She believes that she would have heard something that could have prevented the abduction. Jaquilla's father had never been involved in his daughter's life and was not considered a suspect in her disappearance. Unfortunately, Jaquilla's younger brother was removed from the home after her abduction due to concerns with the living conditions and the events surrounding the abduction. He would be returned to his mother three years later. The two remain in the area with the hopes that Jaquilla will find her way home. At the time, Jaquilla's disappearance would be overshadowed by the events of 9-11 and the national resources required to take on such a massive task that it was. Police have publicly stated that they are not sure whether Jaquilla is alive or dead but it is considered an open investigation. At the time of her disappearance, Jaquilla Scowls was 3 foot and 40 pounds. She was African-American with black hair and brown eyes. She had a brown birthmark on the left side of her face and a scar on the upper right leg. She was last seen wearing a knee-length floral nightshirt and tan hair barrettes. If Jaquilla was still alive today, she would be 23 years old. Number 1. Garnell Moore Out of the 15 cases we have discussed in the last two episodes... This is the only case I had heard of prior to researching these cases. But in August 2002, seven-year-old Garnell Mall was living in a poor part of Maryland. His mother was in prison and his father was homeless. With no one else to care for him, he was left in the temporary custody of his paternal aunt, Belinda Cash, a year earlier. He had never been enrolled in school and never connected with social services. Not only was he lost to the system, it was like he didn't exist. There is no official date of disappearance for Garnell, just that he was last seen at some point in August of 2002. This is when his other aunt, Trina Morton, saw him playing outside of Belinda's home. 
Trina had custody of a younger sibling of Garnell's and would have him over to visit him regularly. But she was also heavily pregnant, and when a scheduled visit the following weekend came around, she went into labour and the visit never eventuated. Trina would contact Belinda Cash soon after to rearrange the visit, only to be told she was moving and that it wasn't a good time. It wouldn't be until years later, when relatives asked to see Garnell, that they would discover he was missing. Cash tried telling relatives that he went on a school field trip to Virginia, but this made family members suspicious as they knew Garnell wasn't enrolled in school, and regardless, school wasn't even in session at this time. Police would interview Cash and she would change her story. She told police that simply Garnell was no longer in her care, that she grew tired of caring for him and left him on the steps of the social services building in the area. But when police went to the address she had given them, it was an abandoned building. Cadaver dogs were brought in to Cash's previous address in the off chance something had happened to Garnell but the search turned up no evidence of what happened to him and it seemed as if he vanished into thin air. Cash voluntarily took a polygraph to back up her story, but the results were inconclusive. At the time of his disappearance, Garnell Moore was 5 foot 3 and 120 pounds. He was African American with black hair and brown eyes. If he was still alive today, he would be 25 years old. Do you have something you would like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Message us on Facebook at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. If you like what you've heard today, we would love for you to share this episode on your social media of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you could leave a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.